0: Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson
1: And I'm Paul R. Henlicke.
0: Today on the show, we are covering Philip Melanchthon's loci communication. Or commonplace topics. This was the first Protestant systematic theology, with a first edition in 1521 that Martin Luther loved. It went through many revisions and iterations. Melanchthon was a bit notorious for always working over previous things. The last edition was published in 1559, so 13 years after the death of his colleague Martin Luther. Now, uh, listeners, uh, you should be forewarned that this will uh, what what. Folllows from here will not be so much uh, in depth discussion of the content of the loci as my um, massive existential crisis brought on by reading the loci, in which a dad, the wise sage doctor, will try to (laughs) yank me back from the brink. Also, I want listeners to know so that your sympathy is fully with me as in what proceeds rather than being won over by dad's um, calm wisdom and rationality. (laughs) I want you to know that I could have read the 1521 edition, the one that Luther loved and which is only about 150 pages in English, but dad said, no, no, you should read one of the later ones. So I picked up the 1559 edition, the last edition, which was translated by J.A.O. Price. those with ears to hear, let them hear here and it was 500 pages long. So, um, yeah, so clearly your sympathies should lie with me here. Dad, why did you put me through this?
1: Well, I think it's all part of my mentoring of a younger theologian.
0: <laughs> Not that young anymore.
1: <laughs> a young, younger theologian in our circles is a very relative term. You know that. <laughs> True enough. Yeah. Look at, um, uh, I, I have, um, Thought that it's important for the tradition of theology that arises with Luther to take critical account of its uh, two, the two-headed monster of Martin and Philip, which gave us birth, and uh, the historical legacy of Lutheranism, as opposed to more uh, more strictly the the. Um, the tradition of theology that stems from Luther has a lot to do with Philip Melanchthon. And we don't really understand uh, all the um, internal uh, twists and turns and contradictions within Lutheran theology um, until we come to terms with uh, this dual uh, uh, siring of our tradition. You know, a lot of people play the game, Sarah, of uh turning Philip Melanchthon into the whipping boy, blaming him for everything that's gone wrong in um, the Lutheran theological tradition. Um, And I want to read a footnote from um, Ralph Quarry's Melanchthon's Christum Cognoscere, Christ's Efficacious Presence in the Eucharistic Theology of Melanchthon, published in 1977. A really excellent study uh, but he uh, he kind of gives us the lay of the land. Let me just quote. Um, Melanchthon is to blame, depending on one's perspective as Proto-Calvinist, Hans Englund, as Crypto-Calvinist, James Richard, as um, father of all Lutheran heterodoxy, Frederick Bente. That was, he's a Missouri Synod uh, church father. Uh, father of all Lutheran orthodoxy, Yaroslav Pelikan, uh, Ernst Trelsch, and you might add there uh, Jacob Preuss, and his, the, that school uh, that's now in trent, in, in, entrenched in, in Fort Wayne Seminary uh, that's so attuned to Lutheran orthodoxy. As father of reformed orthodoxy, Heinrich keppe uh, and Karl Barth. As father of modern theology, along with Daniel Migliori. Uh, now, look at one and the same historical person, Sarah, cannot simultaneously be all of these villains.
0: Yes, but if one and the same person elicits that reaction, one begins to wonder about, I think the term I have used is squishiness. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we start right there then?
1: Well, I want to say one more thing about the first edition of the Loci in 1521. Several things about it. Uh, I always uh, uh, take this quotation, and I use it in my own work. Uh, Theology is knowledge of God as given in the gospel and appropriated in the church. Melanchthon writes in earnest invocation of God it is necessary to consider what one wants to address, what God is, how he is known, where and how he has revealed himself, and both if and why he hears our pleas and cries. Quote. So the subject matter of theology for Melanchthon, at his best, is God. And theology is the knowledge of God. And this is a human existential interest, in earnest invocation, consider what you're talking about when you utter the word God, and consider on what is your access epistemically uh, to the invocation of God, uh, how God reveals himself, uh, whether and how he hears uh, our troubles and cares about them. So I think that this is when you consider how esoteric and metaphysical theology of the medieval period had become in the schools. Uh, This is a a kind of a a charter statement for a new style of theology that became Protestant dogmatics. I know you used the term when you began tonight with the term systematic theology. Uh, Just to be academically neurotic here, let me point out that systematic theology is a modern invention. Up in, okay, up enough. until the time of Schleiermacher, what Protestants did was dogmatic theology, teaching theology um, that's very much answering the kinds of questions that Melanchthon posed there in the quote I just read.
0: Fair enough. And I think actually this will be a point we'll need to return to because uh, my experience reading this was it was very easy to read into it or read out of it a lot of modern rationalistic post-enlightenment approaches and concerns, which of course is anachronistic and false. But there it's another way in which somehow Melanchthon offers up the the mirror or the inkblot test in order to... Um, to, that we retroject things onto him that aren't actually there. So I would just say that Melanchthon appears to be systematic as compared to Luther, because as everyone knows, Luther did not write organized treatises systematically through the whole set of doctrinal topics he he wrote more occasionally. And Melanchthon here is trying to write in a more coherent fashion uh, but if, yes, dogmatically rather than systematically. Yeah, and I,
1: but I think a few more comments on method before we get into the, the existential crisis reading this costume. <laughs> First of all, what Melanchthon does, Lotse communis means in plain English, common topics. And it's, he takes a topical approach to organizing the biblical data. Um, and this is uh, kind of like the Bible dictionary approach to theology if I can use an anachronism, but does more or less kind of illustrate the point. Um, But what we should also recognize is that the key to the Loci Communis that he wrote was he takes the epistle to the Romans to be the canon within the canon that structures and organizes the entire um, treatise that he's writing, the common topics. So he has common topics on the nature of the natural knowledge of God, the uh, religion of the law, um, the revelation of God's will in the law, the terror that this uh, law produces in human hearts, the gospel as God's address to the terrified, and on and on following the entire course of the letter to the Romans which provides the structure for his Lotzai Communis. And one final thought on method. The Latin word for preaching is predicare, to predicate. That and this is behind Luther's statement in the bondage of the will that we referred to in a previous episode, take away assertions, take away predications, and you take away Christianity. So the whole idea here is that Christianity consists in assertions, assertions of the truth of the gospel in various dimensions. And preaching is, in an informed way, to make these predications, to say, uh, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and for his sake your sins are forgiven. Those are predications, both objectively regarding Christ and subjectively applying Christ to the auditor of your sermon. Um, And so this is what is is, uh, aiming, Melanchthon is aiming at clarity on how to predicate the gospel, how to formulate clearly theological assertions on which Christianity stands, informed assertion of the gospel's claim to truth is knowledge of God. And that's kind of the methodological foundations of Melanchthon's whole approach.
0: Well, so far as that goes, I certainly have no objection. I have been known to make an assertion or two myself. But um, I guess, (laughs) well, so let's, let's start off then and maybe just try to tease out why it is it seems hard to get a straight answer out of Melanchthon, who is so committed to assertions and knowledge of God such that and that, footnote you quoted, um, everybody can attribute everything (laughs) to him. So I read this uh, concomitant to and following upon my reading of The Bondage of the Will again, and our episode recording on it. And I was so struck by Luther's relentless clarity about where salvation and faith come from. And as to use the word I used before, the apparent squishiness of Melanchthon on this topic. And I kept waiting for it to clarify that, well, maybe in the next, you know, he's kind of setting things up in this locus and he'll get to it more clearly later on. And I even went through and took a collection of quotes. And even then I had a hard time getting him to nail down what he actually meant. But (laughs) the Gestalt impression I come away with, and I have some textual evidence to back this up, is that Melanchthon stresses... Most heavily thinking the right way about God, um, and again, listeners, know we care very much about thinking, but there is something about making thinking the the centerpiece of right faith um, that was a bit alarming. Not so much because it's um, propositional or content driven, but because it seems to require a proper. Uh, an idealized mental state. And again, this is me anachronizing, but I know where that's going to go in revivalism. I think there is actually a kind of continuity between achieving the right mental state. And uh, even if you bring in emotions to correct just right thinking, if salvation itself is the right mental state, that seems quite disturbing. (laughs) But then the second thing is that it seemed to me Melanchthon was saying that once you have persuaded yourself or been persuaded by the content of the gospel to believe, then God gives you the Holy Spirit with the forgiveness of your sins. It seemed to me, you can challenge me if I'm wrong here, though. I Again, I have some quotes, uh, but it's hard to nail them down. It seems to me that for him, the Holy Spirit is the reward for believing, which then makes believing your job. And that is so absolutely at odds with what Luther is saying. Um, So I have some theory. If if that is what Melanchthon is saying as we go along, I will uh, give my theories as to why I think he got to that point. But um, yeah, I'll let you react to that now.
1: Yeah, you've really put your finger on, I think, a couple of, of deep problems here, but they are deep problems. They're not simple problems. They're deep problems. So as to thinking correctly, um, as auditors know, my youth was spent in the Missouri Synod. I'm not totally um, abashed about that. Um, um, there's much that I've, of benefit that I've derived from it. But I think that this idea that you go through confirmation instruction at the age of uh, 13, 14, something like that in those days, and that you demonstrate your mastery of basic Christian doctrine in order then to receive the sacrament, um, is a kind of an expression of this thinking correctly. Uh, the argument in those days was uh, that you can't take communion if, you, if you're incapable of discerning the body of Christ, which was taken to mean discerning the doctrine of the true and bodily presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper. So you got to get that intellectually in order to qualify for reception of the Lord's Supper. And that's also why um, you often find lapsed people in this tradition, um, including some loved ones of mine, who will say quite bluntly, I know all that. I don't need the church anymore. I got it. I got it. I, I think that way. I, I, I really believe that Jesus is my savior. I got that in my head. So what do I need the church for? I mean, you know, that, that, that's kind of the, 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 the long-term manifestation of this kind of a thinking correctly approach um, in the way that it's mixed up with what faith actually is. I think you put a finger on a sore spot here. Um, thinking correctly has something much more to do for us, I think, that you and I have talked about over these years as the pragmatic task of identifying the God of the gospel in the maelstrom of human history where there are so many false prophets and false Christs and pseudo-messiahs and uh, 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 offers of salvation, liberation, or or righteousness on the marketplace that people are lost like sheep among the wolves. And it's really the job of theology to empower particularly uh, Christian people, both in lay and in ordained service, so that they know the gospel when they hear it and know the uh, impostors when they hear them and can distinguish between the two. Um, second point you were making is another deep problem in Melanchthon's theology um, that, that you, have to, you, have to, you have to believe in the sense of thinking correctly in order to receive the Holy Spirit. This is a kind of a correlative with that scheme, uh, imputative justification, effective sanctification, one, two sequence. Always um, imputative justification when you know and think correctly about the merits of Christ and ask God to apply them to yourself, and then God in heaven pronounce you justified in the sense of being forgiven, and as a result, then the Holy Spirit is granted to renew you, something along those lines. So that's another kind of problem. It's a—it's a, certainly a tendency in Melanchthon's mature theology.
0: Well, I, I can give my theories as to especially why this, this latter point came about. Um, so one thing that struck me is um, Melanchthon is actually very committed to universal atonement to use again our our, our phrase now. He he really truly believes and teaches that um Christ has died for all and is offered to all freely, which is great. We much prefer universal atonement to limited atonement. But then it just kicks the problem down the road (laughs) from the first article and the second article onto the third article, which is, well, if if salvation is universally offered, why is it not universally accepted? And if the Holy Spirit is universally promised, then the problem must ultimately be with the person who is refusing to think rightly or to believe what should be as plain as the nose on their face. And, you know, we saw Luther owned up to that problem very directly. He was not willing to, to solve it by pushing salvation back onto us. He was like, yep, and God is God. <laughs> Deal with it. And, um, you know, and well, we, we dealt with that in the, in the last episode. So I, I think that's one aspect of it is trying to protect universal atonement. Um, the other thing that struck me is of course, he is living um, even farther along in the rise of the spiritualist movements and the Reformation. Um, you know, uh, they saw them already in the 1520s. But this idea that um, people were claiming an unmediated access to God and even to new content of revelation apart from the church, the scripture, the ministry, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And Luther was badly spooked by that. Melanchthon, I think, was also badly spooked by it. So um, I, I think there's also the both the the right thinking part. And the you are responsible for getting the correct content, which is available to you part, and then and only then you get the Holy Spirit is a way of protecting against spiritualist claims.
1: Yeah, I think that's it. That's very good, sir. I think that's right. Um, Of course, whenever you are in such a polemical defensive position, the wall you put up to defend against one error might become... The wall that blocks you from truth in other ways, uh, and I think yeah. that's the problem that you're pointing out. Look at uh, we can. Uh, is this really what caused your existential crisis, Melanchthon's squishiness, on on justification?
0: Um, it it was kind of the first thing that tipped me off that not all is right here. And I I would say not least of all, because as I have, I think, matured in my own understanding of salvation, as Luther has taught it, and in the bondage of the will, and I would say, yeah, even more recently as a missionary who is regularly um, encountering people who are not Christians, who um, maybe know the content of the gospel and who are not, persuaded or maybe you're persuaded, they're kind of squishy too. (laughs) Um, that for me, it has been very important, um, to hang on to this, uh, both universal atonement but both tr- but also trust in the holy spirit's work to draw people in and it really is the holy spirit who draws people to faith and that makes a big difference to how i act as a pastor and a preacher if my job is to talk people into thinking rightly that licenses a lot of really um shady <laughs> behaviors yeah. in church because you're trying to recruit to your team whereas if the holy spirit is the one doing the bringing to faith then i am absolutely responsible especially as a, an ordained pastor to make sure that the content of the gospel the word and the sacraments and the community of the church are offered freely and generously to people but i'm not in charge of bringing them over and you know and i mentioned you know revivalism but you know the the long term effect that we've seen in American Christianity of people well, not just American, but we know American best, of, of people really thinking their salvation is up to their uh, achieving the correct mental state, whether it is a thinking state or a feeling state, is so devastating. And telling people that the grace of God is given to them, extra nos, outside of us, um, is is profoundly liberating to that kind of religious anxiety. So to me, whether I'm talking from inside the church of, of burned out and anxious Christians or outside the church of people who, you know, uh, aren't quite sure what they think about the gospel yet, if they even know it, uh, Luther's works better. And Melanchthon's, I think, is, is licenses a lot of bad stuff.
1: Yeah, so, sure. It can easily lead to um, thinking of uh, evangelism as proselytizing and as uh, theology, as um, as ideology or theology, as propaganda for your religious institution or something like that. And those are, of course, uh, fateful uh, mistakes, uh, and one of the reasons why so much Christianity has brought discredit upon itself. But, you know, let me point out here, Sarah, that the early Melanchthon, and this persists, I think, at least up until the 1555 edition, is really um, uh, in sync with much of what Luther is saying anthropologically. Here's a quotation from the 1555 edition the miserable human heart stands like a desolate deserted old and decaying house god no longer dwelling within and winds blowing through that is all sorts of conflicting tendencies and blasts drive the heart to the manifold sins of uncontrolled love hate envy and pride End quote. well you could that could be be taken right out of uh, Luther's De servo arbitrio now.
0: Fair enough, fair enough. Yes, but that's diagnosing the problem. Well, how about the cure?
1: Yeah, of course, and of course, Luther's cure is the necessity of the uh, the Spirit's work uh, in 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 bestowing true faith, and that really uh, is the problem when you say that the reception of the Spirit. Depends on this tiny little bit of human willpower, even if it's in a formulated negatively as non-resistance, or something along that. That that tiny little bit of human willpower that separates the sheep from the goats. Now Melanchthon uh, said that in the 1530s, and he was greatly chastised for it, and kind of tried to back backpedal from that assertion. And that's what leaves his theology so squishy on the questions that that you're asking about. He was really caught uh, on the one hand between moderate Catholics who were trying to reconcile with the Magisterial Reformation and um, the Ganesio Lutherans led by Flotius on the other side who saw every attempt of Melanchthon to clarify the free the free will problem with the Catholics as a betrayal of the Reformation. Um, but I think what you're getting at is that these conund- these conundrums uh, between divine election and human choice uh, are just uh, endemic to the whole Reformation project. If the you know, here's my point, Sarah, if the whole controversy is interpreted, on the level of anthropology. If you have competing anthropologies and classical Catholic theology that are Thomist with reason on top and then will in the middle and then the desires or passions on the third tier below and in which the reason ought to rule and the will ought to obey reason and control the passions you have that on the that kind of th- uh three-tiered anthropology on the catholic side and on on the gnesio lutheran side you have almost an unmitigated hedonism, you know that human beings are are purely driven by their passions and you're you're like a beast of burden either ridden by god or ridden by the devil to use the metaphor from luther's bondage of the will which the opposite camp, the Genesio-Lutherans, who considered them strict monergists in salvation. God alone does everything, and that's what you have to assert, and that's what you can never debate, right? And Melanchthon's caught between these two forces, and he's trying to make sense out of the divergence between them. But here's what I want to get at. The problem is that you're debating this whole issue on the plane of anthropology. And what really uh, ought to have been done was to argue the point on the plane of Christology.
0: In, in that respect, and that's what I really got out of the bondage of the will this time that we, we just talked about, which is that it, because of the title, as I said, it seems like it's a anthropology treatise. But it's actually, let's well, say, a doctrine of God treatise, and I would say even more heavily pneumatology than Christology, though, of course, you can't have the pneumatology without the Christology behind it. And so that that worked for me. I, that's why I'm troubled by Melanchthon, precisely because he seems to be... Well, all right. So, so let, let's say it seems that he is not theological in the proper sense, talking about God in the doctrine of salvation and, and does focus too much on anthropology. But here, here is how I've tried to charitably, you know, eighth commandment wise, read why Melanchthon turns out this way. And you've, you and I both have already alluded to some of these. So first of all, he just is a very different person from Luther. He obviously has a different personality. He is, he does seem to be more, um, mild mannered, uh, maybe, um, uh, I mean, Luther was brilliant, but Melanchthon is more like egghead brilliant than um you know passionate genius brilliant as we look at Luther. He also did not come through the monastery, so he doesn't have that formative experience of anxiety and legalism he's a very young man when he comes to Wittenberg and starts immediately working side by side with Luther and of course, he lives on for a good long time after Luther too so my from my you know previous readings of Melanchthon and both biographies and and what he's he's written, I think he is afraid of different things, and that's one of the reasons his theology comes out differently, at least in, in some respects. I think he's much more afraid of antinomianism than he is of legalism. I think he sees, um, and I'm wondering now if this is partly being a teacher of university-aged males. <laughs> But Melanchthon is, I think, very concerned about hedonism, um, complacency, anarchy. And with all of the political upheaval happening around him, especially towards the end of his life, I think he must have felt on some level that his task and the reformer's task was literally to keep civilization afloat so it didn't just dissolve into barbarism again. And if you are trying to prevent the world from falling apart around you and you You have no choice but also to address princes and dukes and the emperor and tell them to behave as well as every rank of society below them. Then you are not going to spend a lot of time talking about the bound will and how you can't help but want what you want. And it's all up to God, because if you do that, these hedonists and anarchists and barbarians are going to overrun the whole whole (laughs) thing. They're going to be worse than the Turks. Yep. And you know, I, I think maybe this is something that we feel in a very different way nowadays. But the church has often had to take over the job of looking after civilization itself, I and mean, that's kind of uh, notoriously in in the wake of the the crumbling Roman Empire. the The church was it for civilization, and that's how the medieval church became insanely powerful. And it was it was bad for the church long term, but it probably was on some level necessary. For for civilization and um, and I think a lot of the the best of the liberal Protestant projects that I've become slightly more sympathetic to us. We've looked at people like Niebuhr and Martin Luther King is trying to say like that the the church, the the religious spiritual realities have to speak to civilization because we have to have civilization. Anarchy is bad. But also it's not like civilization run by pagans is a picnic. The Roman (laughs) Empire was not a great place to be. The Third Reich was not a great place to be. Communism is not a great place to be. So... I think there's also this deep issue here of the church's responsibility for civilization, but at the same time, the responsibility for civilization causing the gospel message itself to be distorted in transmission. So that is my, my most charitable reading of things I dislike in Melanchthon. He feels the entire weight of European civilization teetering on his shoulders, and he can't let it fall and crack into pieces.
1: Great, Sarah. No, I think that's spot on. There's a changed historical situation uh, when Melanchthon takes over the leadership of the Lutheran Reformation, following the death of Luther, and uh, uh, it's not only preserving civilization, uh, Melanchthon I think feels responsible for building a new and renewed Christendom. You know, it it the Reform, it's quite, that's why we call it the Magisterial Reformation, because it was not a return to the uh, to the catacombs. Kind of stance that the Anabaptists took, but really an attempt uh, to coordinate the work of the church and the state um, on a renewed kind of Christendom in a Protestant vein or something like that, and that that is also motivates Melanchthon, and you could also mention that during the Renaissance humanism of which he was so much a part. There were revivals of all these ancient philosophical schools—the Platonic skeptics and the Epicureans and the Stoics, and the Cynics. All of these currents were being rediscovered and 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 um, given new life. And so Melanchthon sees himself in a in a battle uh, to assert a, a new Christian civilization over against these resurgent forces uh, that he saw in these. Uh, Hellenistic uh, philosophical schools being revived.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting how much in the loci he, he really engages deeply with the ancient Roman and Greek sources. I mean, way more than I've ever seen Luther done. I know that Luther knew them, but Melanchthon deals with them at length.
1: Yes, and he knows them well, and he's also educating his readers who don't know them so well. Now, I want to just before we go on any further here, I want to come back to this topic you've raised because I had made a discovery in teaching Robert Jensen's systematic theology that correlates with what you just said. But I want to just defer that for a moment and remind me to come back to it when I continue with this idea of the real source of the divergence is on the plane of Christology. And I think to really understand the convoluted nature of historical Lutheranism and the divergent tendencies within historical Lutheranism, you have to look at how Lutheran Melanchthon diverge Christologically. Um, And that is because for both reformers, the account we make of Christ is the backbone of the Reformation doctrine of justification. It's because Christ is the savior of sinners that God, for Christ's sake, can justify the ungodly. That's, I mean, that's just a very vague and general statement, but it's the, the, the shared conviction of both Luther and Melanchthon. But here's the subtle issue. Uh, we know that the way Luther characteristically expressed this was with his idea of the joyful exchange, where Christ says to the penitent, I am your righteousness, give me your sin and take my righteousness. Give me your death and take my life. Give me your doubt and take my spirit. Right? So the joyful exchange is this nuptial uh, arrangement in which Christ takes all the negatives of the believer in order to confer on the believer all of his positives. Now, here's the issue. Is this a metaphor of being? We speak this way of the joyful exchange. Be Christ is this way, namely, as the one who really bore our sins and conveys in their place his righteousness, his obedience in bearing our sins. Is it a way of being? Now, this is very explicit in Luther's treatise against Lautimus. Or, and this is what Melanchthon comes to think, is the rhetoric of the joyful exchange simply a way of speaking? That is, we speak this way because of the inadequacy of human language to the reality of the unchanging God who gives information about himself under such symbols. And I think mm. that's where, that's really the tendency in Melanchthon. My friend, the Danish theologian buholm writes this way, Luther identifies Christ as the giver and Christ as gift which means that it is easier for Luther to make a thicker understanding of the union of person. So that for Luther, the forgiveness of sins is in the body of Christ, which is to be orally consumed. By comparison for Melanchthon, this is still Boholm. He's much more likely to understand Christ as the one who gives something else than himself, namely his benefits. So there's a distinction here. There's Christ, the person, and there's what Christ um, uh, has earned and can give away, his benefits.
0: His treasury of merits. His
1: treasury of merit, which can compensate for the demerits of the sinner in imputative justification. Um, And so there you have a characteristic difference in the doctrine of the Lord's Supper as I just mentioned. For Luther, the the bread is the body of Christ, and the thing signified uh, and the sign is the body of Christ, because the body of Christ contains the forgiveness of sins, for Luther. Whereas for Melanchthon, he is really the source of this vague idea of real presence. So that's all that's really necessary to say, is that somehow Christ is really present in the Lord's Supper, effectively to convey the benefits of forgiveness and so forth. So there is a, there really is a Christological divergence. It's subtle, but it's there between Luther and Melanchthon. And one, one, I'll finish with this. One tragic consequence is that certainty of faith for Melanchthon is no longer the rapture by the spirit into Christ. Luther's famous statement, our faith is certain because it takes us outside of ourselves, into Christ by faith and into the neighbor by love. That's the certainty of faith for Luther. And that uh, that's articulated Christologically, as I just said. Whereas for Melanchthon, uh, the certainty of faith consists, as you were pointing out, in the clarity of doctrinal formulations rigorously grounded on an inerrant and perspicuous scripture. Which is also also the reason why later Lutheran orthodoxy had to fall to the ground with the rise of biblical criticism.
0: Okay, interesting. So... (laughs) so the the Christological divergence being being noted there, and that kind of um removal there there's kind of like a buffer state between you and Christ rather than this intimacy um but that also i mean in a way that explains to me why loci just feels kind of dead on the page to me. And it, it reads rationalistically, though I know that's also an, an anachronistic term. It's partly because of the method itself of of like, chopping up and redistributing scripture. Like you almost have the impression like, um, I, I'm putting words in his mouth, but Melanchthon would have preferred a highly organized scripture by topic rather than the messy group of narratives and poems and prophecies and accusations and um, personal greetings that is, in fact, the Holy Scripture. And so there's, and I, I think that must somehow correlate to the correct mental state and that the reception of the benefits comes upon correctly uh, assessing and accepting the content of the doctrine, um, like which you said becomes very problematic if you look at Scripture in any other way than as a source of divine data. <laughs> so, right. but I, I, I had such mixed feelings about this though, because of course, like when I, like in the, in the book that I wrote on, on a baptism to baptize or not to baptize, Part of what I did was went through the entire scriptural witness about baptism. And, you know, I can think I I did it more whimsically and with nicer prose than Melanchthon's. But I was (laughs) systematically surveying the landscape in order to interpret and apply and explain for a reader of my own time and place. So, I don't know, I just (laughs) – one of my existential crises coming through through the loci was – is this genre itself a betrayal of the gospel? <laughs> but, if, but if we don't do it, how do we avoid becoming sloppy and anti-intellectual? And that's its own kind of anti-gospel collusion with the devil. I, I, was, I don't have an answer, actually. I, I was really left suspended in, in the question of the genre of theology itself.
1: Well, that's, that's excellent. And uh, I think you're right. Uh, I'd put your finger on a conundrum here. And that will get me back to the comment I wanted to make that I made this semester in teaching Robert Jensen's systematic theology along these lines. Um, Because like Karl Barth, Robert Jensen was in his youth a notoriously anti-religious theologian. He regarded religion as the betrayal of the gospel, the domestication of God. So the early uh, Karl Barth in this respect and the early Robert Jensen are very much in the train of the volcanic Martin Luther, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and they regard this kind of logic chopping of scripture and redistribution into organized specific topics as a rationalistic imprisonment of the dynamic force that the the resurrection of the crucified unleashes upon the world. Um, And so um, uh, Jensen maintains this, in this sense, this anti-religious posture throughout his entire life, except towards the end. When surprisingly, uh, in the second volume of his systematic theology, religion starts to get some kind of qualified reendorsement. Uh, suddenly, it's necessary to have bishops, and even a reformed papacy, and um, an ordained ministry, and a dogmatic theology, and uh, on and on and on. Um, you can go through these things in which Jensen is uh, seemingly betraying the earlier radical. Uh, apocalyptic um, uh tone of his theology, so what what gives what's up with that, Sarah? It's very parallel to your diagnosis of what's going on with melanchthon. Jensen has become aware by the nineteen nineties of the collapse of Christendom, the unleashing of barbarian forces in our culture, and the threat of nihilism and he even though he thinks that a religious approach to God cannot but betray the God of the gospel. He does think that the religions, including the Christian religion, serve as a check against and a buffer against, a dike against the floods of nihilism that are, are generating in Western decadent Western civilization. So I thought that was a very interesting discovery. I'm indebted to one of my students, Jonathan Wint, who actually uh, made a a rigorous study along these lines and convinced me that he was right.
0: Oh, fascinating. Yeah, I know Jonathan. He's a good guy. So, well, (laughs) that's – I mean – this could take us far afield. My initial reaction was, "But what happens when your churches actually and actively collude with the nihilism <laughs> the, <laughs> and the barbarians in charge of the state?" But I think we'll leave that topic aside for the moment.
1: Well, um, uh, uh, no, I'll just mention though in the process. You know, this this summer semester, I'm doing research on before Auschwitz, what Christian theology must re- learn from the rise of Nazism, and I'm reading. Uh, Mary Solberg's very interesting translation of source documents from the German church struggle. And the, not, the, the especially uh, disturbing is the uh, argumentation of the so-called German Christians um, actively coll- collaborating with the, the National Socialist Revolution as, for them, an antidote to nihilism. <laughs>
0: Well, I mean, this is we we so often invoke Jesus' parable about the house occupied by a demon and the demon gets cast out, but then nothing is put in the house to fill it up. And so it just stands empty. And then the demon comes back with seven buddies. It was like, woohoo, house party. So, I mean, there's a real acknowledgement of a demon in the house, um, but you got to put something good in its place because the culture does not... A a culture abhors a vacuum just as much as nature does. And that's
1: where where we've been urging, Sarah, isn't it? That Lutheran preachers have to learn again from Martin Luther, if not from the Apostle Paul, from Martin Luther, if not from the Gospels. That if they want to preach Christ, if uh, they want to proclaim Christ, they've also got to give their auditors the Holy Spirit. That's their job. Their job is to refill that empty house, not with the Holy Spirit, that image of Melanchthon as the human soul being a deserted, desolate house with all winds of blasphemy blowing through it and occupying it. I mean, that's really powerful. And the antidote is for Christian preachers to give their auditors the Holy Spirit in the same breath as that they present them uh, with Christ.
0: Okay, so then to follow from this back and get back to... Melanchthon. I will say in all fairness, around page 400, I finally developed some sympathy for what Melanchthon was up to. (laughs) And maybe along the lines of what we've been talking about here, because I had to kind of shift my idea of what theology is or what a book like this ought to be doing. So like I said, if I saw it as the chopping up and redistributing scripture in this rationalistic, organized way, it really failed for me. But long enough through it I began to think, well, wait, maybe what Melanchthon is actually doing I I think this is more like a handbook for faithful living. This is actually a wise older brother in the faith walking a younger or a less um, tried or developed believer through all these things, because actually the book is full of advice. It's full of examples. It's full of hagiographical examples, which really surprised me. Um, and uh, it's it seems to me like what he's trying to do is he's maybe looking at two types of people. One is the believer who is is caught between the mortality and weakness of creation and the promise of redemption and is actually just trying to literally figure out how to survive in this crazy world and he is melanchthon is trying to walk them through it he's assuming you're already you're already fully there in the church you're a believer you do actually have the Holy Spirit whenever exactly the Holy Spirit arrived in your life and you're trying to figure out what to do melanchthon is there to walk you through it and as a off to the side melanchthon is also implicitly challenging the the complacent or the falsely confident who are taking advantage of grace and not properly stewarding the gifts that they've been given. And he's he's calling them to account. And so if I think of it that way, then not only do I feel more sympathy for Melanchthon, but I realize how much actually I do this too, because you and I have both expressed a lot of frustration at a kind of gospel preaching that is only ambulance chasing, which just allows people to run their lives to ruin and be totally miserable and mired in their sins and then come along and pat them on the head and say, it's okay. Jesus forgives you all your sins and you're fine. But people aren't fine. They're really desperate. And that's why they end up in legalistic religion or prosperity religion or chasing after self-help programs, because in the first article sense, their lives are a total wreck. So yes, of course, you have to attend to civilization and to people's actual lives and not just give them this sort of this um, uh, empty religious talk of forgiveness that doesn't that just leaves them actually still bleeding on the side of the road. So if I think about the loci doing that, um, rather than what I generally... Really go to Luther for like then I you know I I can disagree with some of his specific applications, but I can be much more sympathetic to what Melanchthon is trying to do, even if I don't love it.
1: I'm I'm really glad that you've come to that because I think we have to read Melanchthon historically, just like we read Luther and or for that matter the Bible historically, which means we have to understand them fairly in terms of the, the 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 time in which they lived and what Gadamer calls the horizon of possibilities that confronted them. Um, And as we've talked about the shift in horizons, I mean, Luther is trying to keep the gospel afloat in the world's last ravaged hour, to quote the scholar Edwards, who wrote the book Luther's Last Battles. Uh, Luther is convinced that Christ is coming in glory momentarily, and the world is about to end, and his only job is to lash out at Turk and Jew and peasant and Pope in order to defend the gospel so that the true believers can hang on before the Denouement comes. Melanchthon, Melanchthon has survived the crisis of Luther's death, and that episode has passed into history. And now this new task arrives. How can can we confront the civilizational challenges by building a reformed Christendom? And that's what Melanchthon's theology is about, just as you were describing, I think.
0: So if we're sympathetic to that and we realize that the religious do have to do something to defend a civilization, then we are left with what actually happened after (laughs) <laughs> so the question is, did it work? <laughs> I just actually read a history of Germany. Um, for actually, an episode we'll be doing a, a few from now uh, about um, Tillich, I, I realized that I just didn't, I didn't understand enough of what happened between basically Luther and World War One. I. I, you know, I kind of vaguely knew about Bismarck forging the nation of Germany out of lots of little kingdoms, but that was about it, and. Um, so anyway, I read this history and, you know, among other things, what I couldn't help but notice, even in this book that was not at all primarily concerned with religious history, how fast Luther went from being a gospel preacher to a figurehead that was invoked for all sorts of causes that had nothing to do with what Luther actually cared about. And um, and and just the establishment of Protestant Christendom of its own parallel institutions and civilization building and depending on princes and taking patronage from the state and becoming obedient to both the zeitgeist and state. And it's just, it's so if you see the need for religion to protect civilization, but then you see where civilization goes and it's not even like in the case of Germany, we can say, well, it was pretty compromised, but at least it didn't revert to paganism because it did. <laughs> you know, or we can Give other examples, but um, and I, 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 we should focus on Lutheranism here. But you know the the massive collusion of Catholic nations with fascism in both Southern Europe and Latin America is a huge problem. The susceptibility to um, communist revolutions in the East that's a, a huge issue too. You know there are a few countries that have done relatively less awful, um, but yeah. So if we're gonna let let Melanchthon do this genre of theology to prevent civilization from crumbling, but then civilization crumbles anyway, then what?
1: Yeah, well, that's, of course, that's the crisis of the modern, the double crisis of modernity that Robert Erickson describes in the first chapter of his book, Theologians Under Hitler. Along came the rationalist enlightenment, which uh, undermined uh, the certainty of the Bible on which Melanchthon's entire project depends, that that sound method can can simply take the data in the Bible and lend it a logical organization itself, drawn from the Bible in the letter to the Romans, um, and then in those formulations base the certainty of faith that way, ground the certainty of faith that way. But when the rationalists come along and criticize the Bible historically and show that uh, much of these topical treatments of scriptural passages are simply tearing texts out of their own historical context and have no validity. Well, that's a genuine crisis for Protestantism. But then a century later, along comes uh, Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud, the children of the rationalists. Who undermine the rationalist faith in reason, and say human beings are instead in the thrall of unconscious powers—whether that's capital or, or um, the will, the or the uh, biological drive of the will to power, or for Freud, the subconscious motives and so forth—and um, that's the kind of morass. That you're in by the time of the twentieth century, fascism arising. So yeah, it's a mess. <laughs> yes, it's a mess.
0: I thought you were gonna have like the solution. You're just gonna pop it out of your your top hat like a bunny and say, "Here's <laughs> here's you know, critical dogmatics will save civilization."
1: Well, I I know I I I would like to say something about uh, what I think might some. Uh, hopeful uh, ways to proceed. But I would like to agree with Philip Melanchthon. What is not hopeful is anti-intellectualism. What is not hopeful is unlearned theology and all the various ways in which theology has been dummied down. Now, that is not to say that a lot of theology hasn't discredited itself by its esoteric and impenetrable jargon and interest in topics that have nothing to do with the promotion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, So I'm agreeing with Melanchthon that we need a scholarly uh, theology that effectively teaches people um, what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ and a member of his church. Um, So uh, there is a need for dogmatics. I think in distinction from Melanchthon, I don't think dogmatics can base itself on the simple clarity of Scripture, the simplistic clarity of Scripture, itself based upon the idea that the Holy Spirit dictated the Bible word for word or any other such appeal to a miracle like that.
0: Well, and it, it could also be, again, in its time and place, this loci organization was really illuminating and helpful. And because of where we are, it, it has less of that texture. But it doesn't mean that the ideal of scholarship and clarity aren't, aren't common terms across the centuries. It's just there there is a, um, a cultural variability to what presents itself as plausible and compelling and helpful and persuasive. Pers- uh, Clear,
1: perspicuous. I guess that's the word, right? Perspicacious. Perspicacious. Perspicacious, right? No, I think that dogmatics ought to be organized more ecumenically, and uh, and based upon the creeds, the baptismal uh, creed, um, because the baptismal creed is what every believer professes on the occasion of their baptism, and to which every believer recurs when they return to baptism. And that takes us back to one of Melanchthon's early insights, that dogmatics is about identifying the God of the gospel, namely the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, who is the Father of the next name, Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, and their Holy Spirit, who has brought us into the community of Christ for the forgiveness of sins and the hope of uh, the resurrection of the dead and so forth. So that triune, that trinitarian organization of, of the um, content of belief that is professed on the occasion of baptism would simply be the better way of structuring a dogmatic theology. Now what makes that not a return to pre-critical dogmatics is the fact that after two thousand years, the traditions of theology have accumulated a lot of stuff, and a lot of it is um, um, malformed growth. that that the tree of faith needs a good pruning. so that and here again, this is in tune with melanchthon, so that the the uh, what obscures uh, from the heart of the matter can be pruned out of view so that we can see, what the what what the the tree of faith is really uh, uh expressing to us um so there's a need for a kind of a critical retrieval of the essentials leaving aside a lot of the dross. I think the way we talked about Mary and the virgin birth recently was a good example of that,
0: yeah yeah, and it's it's interesting too because um <laughs> Actually, this approach resists a a resolved rationalistic or mathematical approach because there is clearly a minimum of belief. You know, the let's say the baptismal creed is the minimum, but there also is an implied maximum, or at least maximum in the sense of you cannot require people to believe more than um, require them. I want to say to believe more than is actually um, ecumenically confessed and um, and uh, biblical publicly sourced. Um, and I think there's, um, when there's this, um, overwrought concern for right thinking, then that creeps towards, um, and theologians are very guilty of this, of trying to establish every single possible point of doctrine, every single possible point of belief, get it nailed down, and then require people to believe that too. And I think often the kind of contentless alternative Christianities are really turned off by that maximalism, um, but don't understand that there uh, there still is content, even if you don't impose it on people in this over.
1: Weeding way yeah absolutely I mean anyone whos uh, knows the Lutheran tradition would understand immediately from Luther's objection to the doctrine of transubstantiation. He didn't deny the the point that it was trying to make. in fact he had his own way of ex- expressing that point that the doctrine of transubstantiation was trying to make. What he objected to was a formulation that was dependent upon Aristotelian metaphysics, and then made acceptance of this formulation a matter of salvation. Right, And so that's laying burdens on people's conscience. And I think this was the authentically Lutheran thing in Rudolf Bultmann's theology, even his notorious essay on demythologizing, that you simply can't lay on people's consciences beliefs that are in contradiction to uh, other beliefs that they hold conscientiously. Um, and, and so you have to be very careful about burdening consciences with over-beliefs. Um, on the other hand, a genuinely critical and evangelical dogmatics would really have the spirit, gee, look what we get to believe. Look what we get to believe. How wonderful is what we get to believe. That would be a very different tonality to the whole project.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I just would like to put a plug in again for Luther's small catechism because it's very short, and very minimalistic, and yet all the essentials are covered there. I think if you can have that as be the, the floor, the minimum, um, you will do well, <laughs> very well.
1: Yeah, I agree. And past, yes, and, and that would be, oh, to return to that in pastoral practice, if if during liturgical seasons where it's appropriate, Reciting the small catechism on the Ten Commandments and their explanations during Lent, uh, the various uh, articles of the Creed during certain festival seasons and so forth, the Lord's Prayer during the long green season. Man, I, I just think the use of the small catechism is utterly neglected. And with children's sermons, how much better you can do if you simply bring the little ones forward. And they love to memorize. They love to repeat after you. Just teach them a small verse from the daily scripture. Teach them a small part of the catechism. Have them repeat it. Make a message out of that. And then send them back before you, their little attention spans collapse <laughs> while you're making a long a, side, a second sermon to the adults in the congregation. <laughs>
0: Yes, I endorse that. So, well, to wind wind down here, um, as I'm just thinking again about, as you said, our, our two-headed hydra of Lutheranism. <laughs> One head is Luther and the other is Melanchthon with their very different personalities and concerns and fears and so forth. And I thought in some ways it also represents what I think is right there, a tension that exists in the scripture itself. Uh, a necessary tension i 'm even going to assert on the one hand, there is the apocalyptic side, and on the other, there is what uh, I think we get from New Testament studies we call the salvation history side, which is more like a civilization and um, its discontents and and how to make the best of the long the long history that follows out of the gospel and it seems to me that um if you live only in apocalyptic, then what you end up with is premillennialism as we've defined before, the idea that there's going to be this massive, violent crisis um, before Jesus reigns with the saints for a thousand years in a very literal sense. And out of that you get things like the Left Behind series and all the multiple predictions of the end of the world, including by Luther himself alas, uh, but many uh, in his wake Mm -hmm. over the centuries Mm -hmm. as well. Um, You end up justifying almost anything ethical Because you know the end is nigh. We got to do what we got to do to be on the right side of history, and um, uh, and ultimately a complete rejection of creation itself. There's no way that the long-term outcome of apocalyptic uh, as as it continues on the earth, if the end doesn't actually come, you're going to end up in a Gnostic or Manichean direction, I think. Luther never got that far, but I think we have seen apocalyptic divorced from actual care of civilization um, in the past 500 years. Bear that out. But on the other hand, if you only live in this uh, civilization-centered salvation history approach, you'll end up with post-millennialism, which is the every day and every way, we're getting better and better. Progress is our highest value. Um, and if you progress is your highest value, you end up justifying the removal of people who stand in the way of progress. You sanctify your institutions, no matter how awful they are. You collapse the law and the gospel. You collapse the church into the state and blood and earth become the ultimate concerns because that's how you keep civilization strong and healthy. So yeah. this is what happens if the two are divorced. So the question, I think, is can we have a neither pre-millennial nor post-millennial orientation, but an amillennial dialectic of these two, recognizing that actually the reason these both speak in the scriptures is because we need them both. They are mutually correcting and neither one gets to win. Um, Jesus wins <laughs> when, <laughs> when he comes again in glory. But for us to survive in the meanwhile is to keep these two in the very, very uneasy tension that they necessarily live with each other. Yeah, I
1: really like that, Sarah. Yeah, there's a dialectic we inherit, say, in between the historical apostle Paul and the portrait of Paul in, in the book of Acts, uh, between these two motifs that you're talking about that I think, uh, I think that's right. Now, the, of course, the historical problem has been that the salvation history model swallowed up and obscured the apocalyptic, which then went underground, and then came out in all these reactionary movements and ways in protest against the false pretensions of Christian civilization based on the Salvation History model. So I think you're right, we need a kind of a a, a sophisticated dialectic between these two motifs. Then in times, uh, uh, in favorable times, the church can goad the civilization on to genuine progress, um, but always aware that the progress can regress and that the forces of darkness can return overnight, uh, in which case uh, the the resort to the apocalyptic. I mean, my book about Osuski Between Humanist Philosophy, Salvation History, and Apocalyptic uh, was all about this motif, about the man living in the tension between the two in the drama of Central European history in the 20th century.
0: Okay, so that's what we need to do. So my final question to you, Dad, is, is it possible? Is a church of the gospel actually possible?
1: Well, um, if if it's not, you and I are out of a job. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I think the concerns are bigger than a job, Dad.
1: Yeah, I know. Uh, I was gonna, I'm was going. i being a little facetious. I'm already retired, so it's your problem, kid.
0: <laughs> Thanks, Dad. <laughs> Just like a boomer to say to a Gen Xer.
1: <laughs> no, what I really think is that, in America at least, and I'm pretty sure this is true in Europe too, we are really going through a profound sifting of the church. And um, these issues that we're identifying... Uh, will become, um, at some point, um, crucial to the future. Um, and I think it's a, it's a great question to leave our listeners with. Is a church of the gospel really possible? Uh, and, and not to give a false and quick reassurance that it is, rather to make it that oppressing uh, concern, a, a searching concern, a self-examining concern, is a church of the gospel possible? Of course, it's possible if there is a God of the gospel.
0: Always comes back to that, doesn't it? I think so. All right. Well, rather than tie that up too neatly with a bow, we will just leave that suspended there. It all depends on whether there actually is a God. Who knew? God of the gospel. <laughs> and... Wait
1: a minute. There there are lots of gods. Whether there is a God of the gospel.
0: Okay. Whether there is a God of the gospel. Okay. So sit with that, listeners. Ponder it. Tell us what you come to. And next time on the show, we will be talking about the first epistle of Peter. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahenlickiewilson.com and paulhinlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.